I want to try to do my best today in presenting God's Word, even despite a cold and a cough. So if you will be bearing with me, uh, I will do my best to serve you the best way we can. Amen. If you can, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. What I'd like for us to do is these next several weeks, we kind of started in Ephesians before our missionary emphasis is in the last few weeks, but I'd like to go back to Ephesians, and I think finishing out Ephesians this spring before the summer would be a good good time to focus on what God has to say in his word. Amen? Because the, word, the, the book of Ephesians is a, a rich letter from Paul to the churches, primarily in, in a time of conflict and persecution. Paul is reminding the, the Gentile Christians in Ephesus of their value, reminding them that, you know what, you may not be part of God's chosen race, chosen nation, chosen people of Israel, but God loves you and has given you equal inheritance. Amen? And that's the beauty of this wonderful work. But then, at, toward the end of Ephesians, the latter half of Ephesians, Paul says, shows us what this looks like to be bought by the blood of Christ, to be part of his church, and how we live that out. And so this is a wonderful, wonderful letter. If you will, stand with me as we read Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 together. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Jesus Christ on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places." This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Father God, we thank you for the word that you've given us through your servant Paul. In the midst of suffering and attacks, in the midst of those who come against the true preaching of your word, Paul reminds us that, dear God, your truth is a mystery in Christ. That, dear God, you, from the foundations of the earth, had a plan. And that plan was to redeem your people and to include all nations, regardless of where they come from, Lord, you love them, and you, and, you, and you draw them into your church. That's a mystery. 
And so, God, I pray this morning that you would teach us through the words of your servant, Paul, what it means to be heirs, joint heirs, fellow heirs, equal heirs in the grace that you pour out on your people. Remind us of where we are before you, God. Speak to us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen. God bless you. Have a seat. The theme of Paul's letter to the churches here in Ephesus can be broken down into two places, two parts. The first part, and uh, this is what we read in the first three chapters primarily, is that Christ reconciled all creation to himself and to God. This is the purpose of Jesus Christ in his life on this earth, his sacrifice on the cross, and his resurrection from the grave. It was to redeem all of creation back to God who created them. Because through the fall of Adam and Eve and through our, our continuing curse of Adam that we carry in us, we are separated from God's grace. Jesus Christ reconciled all of that, all of the fallen creation, back to Jesus himself and to God the Father. That's the first part. The second part is the fulfillment of... Through this reconciliation, there was a fulfillment that God had initiated in the very beginnings of time that Christ would unite all people from all nations to himself and to one another in this thing called the church. God does call out his own children in the nation of Israel, calls them out through Moses, and takes them to the promised land to show the world that he is calling out a special people. But then Paul tells us in this text that that was just a shadow pointing to the bigger mystery that Jesus was fulfilling. And that was not just a unique special nation alone, but but through that nation of Israel there would come Jesus Christ the Messiah and reconcile all of the nations through Christ to each other and be the church. Now, that's, that's a mystery in a lot of ways. Why is that a mystery? Because what's happening here in this letter is Paul is addressing those who were coming against him. He was addressing his accusers who claimed that Paul's apostleship was invalid because Paul was not part of Jesus' twelve. Also, Paul had a very colorful history, if you recall. He was one of the Pharisees of the Pharisees. He was the one who uh, had all of the Jewish knowledge, and, and he was out persecuting all of the Christians. And how dare he come in here and tell us what this gospel of Jesus Christ means. And so Paul is writing and addressing this, really. He, he does not begin his ministry looking for those who are against him. He just has to preach the truth of the gospel, and, and the opposition comes. And so Paul, in this text, tells us why he's addressing this problem. Because part of the accusations are that the false teachers were coming into the churches in Ephesus and telling the Christians there, you know what, Paul may have had a revelation from Jesus Christ, but he didn't give you the full gospel because he did not give you the law. He did not tell you that in order to be part of God's people and to be seen as God's children, you must obey the Mosaic law and you must be circumcised men and you must do the sacrifices. And Paul is saying, no, that's not the gospel at all. 
That was just merely a shadow pointing to the truth, this mystery of Christ that was going to reunite everybody. Because the reason that the churches in Ephesus were struggling here is because Paul had spent significant amount of time in Ephesus. We saw this several weeks ago when we were looking at chapters 1 and 2, that Paul spent three years in Ephesus building up this church. We see that in the, in the book of Acts, chapters 19 and 20. Do you remember how Paul stirred up some trouble there in Ephesus as he goes into the synagogues and he preaches the gospel and the, the artisans, those who made their living making small idols to the goddess Artemis? Because Ephesus was this place of a great Greek temple to the goddess Artemis. And Paul was disturbing their economy. <laughs> he was disturbing their, their money by preaching the truth of the gospel. And we read in the book of Acts that there was a riot that ensued because of what Paul was teaching. Now, at the time that Paul writes this letter, he is in prison in Rome. This is perhaps several years after he established the church there. And he gets word that there are troubles going on. He gets word that there are false prophets coming in and teaching error. <clears throat> now, it's interesting here that when we look in chapter 3... Paul is addressing this error not as a, as a crusade. Paul is actually emphasizing here in chapter 3 that I would have kept my revelation quiet, but because of this I now must speak the truth. Paul is explaining that his calling to ministry as an apostle is unique in that he was called by Jesus Christ himself to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Who had better else to write this to is to the uh, Gentiles there in Ephesus. See, the part of the accusation here is that Paul's apostleship was not genuine. And so Paul is writing here in verses 1 through 7 that his calling was unique. His calling was to a specific ministry. Now it was to the, to the Gentiles and drawing them into the church. And so these Gentile Christians needed the assurance of Paul's words here. That's why he's writing them. He says here in verse 1 of chapter 3, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you, Gentiles. He's reminding them in verse 1 here that even though he's in prison, he's there on their behalf because his ministry to the Gentiles is what has taken him to prison. I'm here for you because God has called me to minister to you. Verse 2, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Again, here in verse 2, he's pointing out that this stewardship of God's grace is, is also understood here as a dispensation. That's what the King James says, that there was a dispensation of God's grace to Paul. You could also understand this stewardship or this dispensation as Paul's commission as the apostle to the Gentiles. Assuming, verse 2, assuming that you have heard of this stewardship or this commission of God's grace that was given to me for you. He's reminding them that he is not ministering to the Gentiles because it was an opportunity to better himself or to make money or make a name for himself, which would have been one of the accusations. Instead, he has been commissioned by God specifically for this purpose, to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And to bring them into the church. To unify all of God's people through the blood of Christ. 
And so he's reminding them here that these Gentile Christians were given an authentic inheritance because, not because Paul is somehow just waving a magic wand and saying you're, you're as good as we are. It's that the origin of this calling for the Gentiles is not through Paul, but the origin of this calling of the Gentiles to share in the inheritance of Christ has a divine origin. It's not that Paul became an apostle and saw an opportunity to better himself. Instead, he was called by God, he was commissioned by God to usher in this unification of all of God's people through the blood of Christ. And to remind the Gentiles that they have an inheritance and that this inheritance is not somehow less than the inheritance of the Jewish people. Instead, it is just as valid and just as valuable and just as divine as theirs. Amen? He says here that on behalf of you Gentiles, I'm doing this. Now, in verse 3, as he continues here, talking about God's commission of grace that was given to me for you. He says, How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. Paul has written about this revelation that he's received you know, from Acts chapter 9, where he was on the road to Damascus, and we know that story, where Jesus himself appears to Paul and says, Why are you persecuting my people? Remember what happens? He gets knocked off his horse in the dirt. And he's blinded for several days. How many of you can have a, the same testimony? That's how God had to get my attention. Right? Some of us have to go through that. In order for God to wake us up, he's got to knock us off of our horse. He's got to blind us to our, our, to our pride to get our attention. This was Paul's testimony. Paul writes about this revelation. He speaks about this revelation often. We see that he says this revelation to me is not the same as that revelation of these false prophets because the false prophets coming into Ephesus to teach were somehow, you know, they were puffing themselves up and saying, you know what, Paul may have a message, but he only has half the message. And God has given us that, that secret mystery revelation that here, let me tell you what you need to do. So now we begin to see here in this text, that beginning in verses 3 and 4, that Paul is saying, okay, I was going to keep quiet, but these false prophets have forced my hand. Let me tell you what my revelation was like. Let me tell you how true my revelation is. And let me show you how false theirs are. He says in verse 4, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. He's letting these churches know in Ephesus that the mystery of Christ, in verse 4, is something that false prophets can never understand because they are not called by God. Paul is emphasizing here and reminding them that, that God does call special leaders, apostles, pastors, and teachers to share the truth of the gospel with the world. False teachers will reveal themselves through their false teaching because it will result in error and bad fruit or no fruit at all. 
But Paul says this revelation of mine is not something that I whipped up in a, in a potion. This revelation came from Jesus Christ himself, and this revelation is something that I can prove to you. <laughs> As he says here that I've written about it in many times before, there in verse, four, uh, verse 3, as I have written briefly. In other words, what Paul is saying here is that this mystery being made known to me is something that I have written about in the past. I will continue to write about it now. And the reason I am doing so is because I can easily prove it as true. Whereas these false prophets have nothing to stand on. If you start analyzing what these false teachers are trying to say here, their argument and their quote-unquote gospel disintegrates, but he says, I am so confident in the truth of the gospel that Jesus Christ has given me, I will write about it, and I will defend it, and I will preach it to the ends of the earth, because it is valuable, and it is true, and it is right, and I don't back down from it at all. Now, is Paul boasting here? Not really. I think he's just, right, okay, you forced my hand, here we go. <laughs> And I want, why do I want to bring this out? It's because if we're not careful in our day and age, and, and even in this church that we have established here, we, we do found, we, we, the foundation of this church is that we want the truth of the gospel to be proclaimed. But we have to be cautious here, and, and this is something that the Lord has really dealt with me in the last few weeks, is I really wrestle with how do we honestly and faithfully and with humility preach this gospel. If we start off with the premise that everybody else's teaching is wrong and we are right, we're going to go out there and hunt down the heretics. I don't see Paul doing that here. Paul does not have a ministry founded upon the premise, I'm going to go show everybody who the heretics are. Now, does he do that? Absolutely. But Paul doesn't have to go out and find the heretics. The heretics reveal themselves because Paul is preaching the truth. You see the difference? Paul does not have a ministry here of judging everyone else's ministry so that Paul's ministry is elevated. He doesn't have to have that. Paul is telling the church in Ephesus here in these verses, you know what, these false teachers have come in and I, now it's my time to show you the truth of what I, my ministry is all about. Because he's defending himself. Christians, let me, let me em, em, encourage us all here. It can be so easy in this day, day and age of media. You know, it used to be it, it, the, the gospel was preached on radio and then it was preached on television and clearly we see all kinds of foolishness going on there. Now it's on the internet and now, now the new craze with this new generation of Christians and pastors coming up is they want to establish their presence on YouTube and establish their presence on Twitter. And they're going to defend the gospel against the heretics. I don't know if you ever get on Twitter or anything, but Christian pastors love Twitter now. And boy, they'll call out heretics left and right. But the problem is this. If your ministry is founded upon and only focuses on finding the heretics... Are you preaching the gospel? And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying these, these accusers have, who have come into your midst, Christians in Ephesus, have confused you by telling you that because you are Gentiles, you're not fully a part of the family of God. And Paul is reminding them of what he taught them. 
Only when you have to defend the gospel should you ever point out someone else's error. Then and only then do you say, you know what? You forced my hand. Here we go. (laughs) That's what Paul's doing here. He says here that as he's writing about it, as he has preached the truth of the gospel, here is what has happened. He is now, his apostleship is under attack. His ministry is under attack. And when that's the case, then the gospel of Jesus Christ is under attack. So he says here in verse 6, what these false prophets do not understand is a mystery to them. Look in verse 6. He says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In verse 6 of chapter 3, Paul is reminding the church at Ephesus that as Gentiles, you don't believe what these false people are telling you. He's telling them that you are fellow heirs. You are members of the same body. In other words, you are members of God's church. You are equal participants in God's grace. And don't let anyone tell you any different. Has anyone ever told you that if you don't do X, Y, or Z, you're not a true Christian? If you don't speak in tongues, you don't have the fullness of the Holy Spirit. If you don't come to church and read your Bible every day and and, and come to vacation Bible school and come to Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, somehow you've you've lost your salvation. Whatever it is, if you're not reading your Bible the right way, if you're not praying the right way, somebody ever told you that you must not be a true Christian? What's Paul saying here? He says this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Let me advise you and encourage us all that if we are bought by the blood and we know individually without a doubt that Jesus Christ has wiped away our sins and that God's grace has been poured out upon us, do not let anybody tell you you're not good enough. Amen? Amen. See where we're going here? If we act like these false prophets that Paul is writing about here and tell people that you're not good enough to partake in God's grace because you're not doing something, in this situation, you're not being circumcised. You're not following the laws of the Mosaic order. You're not coming and doing sacrifices. You're not coming to the synagogue and reading the scriptures. You're not doing this, 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 or this. Paul is saying, you are, even though you're Gentiles, the mystery of the gospel is this exactly, that Jesus Christ has brought you into the fold. And you're just as much of God's family as the Jewish nation. Why can't we take that same idea here? And this is what Paul is basically saying. We can apply it to the church now. If we have somebody who is a Gentile in the matter that they are not Christians and they're not part of the church. Once they come into the fellowship of believers through the blood of Jesus Christ, who are we to then pass judgment on them because they're not as good as we are? Now, do we have 
the responsibility as the church to disciple new Christians and show them the proper way of living as a Christian? Absolutely. Do we have the responsibility to teach them what it means to be loved by Christ and to understand the forgiveness that they have received from Christ? Absolutely. But who are we to look at other people and say, you know what, you're not as good as me. I've been a Christian much longer, and you're just not part of the family yet. Amen? That's what Paul's writing about here. Now in verse 7, beginning of verse 6 and 7, what Paul is writing about here is this mystery of Christ is actually the fulfillment of the prophecies that came through Isaiah that at some point there would be an altar where all the nations would come. In Isaiah chapter 19, the prophet Isaiah prophesied that there would be a point when all of the nations would be united at the same altar in Jerusalem. Paul is basically saying right here in verse 6 and 7 that this mystery that has been prophesied for a long time that these Gentiles do not understand or these false prophets do not understand is because the grace of Jesus Christ that pours out upon the forgiven brings all people to worship at the same altar that the Jews have worshipped at for centuries. And God's mystery here is that that was his plan from the very beginning. Yes, he called out a special people. And yes, they became a special nation. And yes, there were special requirements to be part of God's people. And there was a separation between God's chosen people of Israel and the Gentiles outside. What Paul is saying is that was just the stepping stone that pointed to the coming of Christ. The mystery is that God had this planned out from the very beginning. Verses 8 through 13, Paul continues this. Actually, in verse 7 and then at 8, he says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. It's interesting here in verse 7 that Paul tells the, the, the Ephesian church here that of this gospel, the, the true gospel of Jesus Christ, God made him a minister as a gift to the Gentiles. And the only way that Paul can do this ministry is through the gift of God's grace. Paul's ministry was God's plan to the Gentile Christians. And this is what Paul's reminding them here. The accusers can come against my apostleship. The accusers can come against the teachings that I gave you. They can come against what we did for three years together as a church, as he built up this church. He said, but just remember that it was God's hand that was moving that established you Ephesians as a people of Christ do not let these false teachers come in because the ministry of Paul was ordained by God as a gift and you see here in verse 7 you can see Paul's humility here this is why we can argue in that Paul is not out boasting about himself in order to uh, crush other people he says, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. Paul basically argues here, there's nothing I can do apart from God's grace. The ministry that I have here is not of my own choosing, of my own doing, of my own making. It's only through the working of God's power that I'm able to minister to you. 
Now verses 8 through 13 as we summarize these final verses here. Paul is basically telling the church everything that has happened in the movement of the Holy Spirit amongst the Gentiles after Christ's resurrection is a fulfillment and evidence of God's plan of his eternal purpose from the very beginning. In other words, the, the, the establishment of God's church through the Gentile nations outside of Israel was not a, oops, Israel rejected me, let's go to plan B. See, we could, we could mistakenly think that God had a plan, humanity fails, and so God says, well, I've got to try something else. That's a misunderstanding of the gospel. Because everything that is orchestrated in the church, everything that God, God's hand is placed toward, has been something that has been eternally prepared for and planned. And so this mystery here is that God's wisdom was prophesied from the ancients of old and is revealed in Christ. And the problem with the false prophets is that they see what God is doing as a mystery. And so what Paul is doing here is, let me, okay, if, a, if it's a mystery, in other words, what's the very nature of a mystery? It's something that is not understood. It is something that you can't see the answer to. That's what a mystery is. And so Paul says, okay, if it's such a mystery, let me tell you what that mystery is. Let's clarify the problem here. This mystery is that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of God's plan from the very beginning. There is a divine revelation that has come through Jesus Christ that even before Jesus Christ was born, lived, and died, God was telling you what was going to happen through the Old Testament prophets. But through Jesus Christ, now we have a fulfillment of God's intent there is a divine revelation from God making it clear what the purpose of the church is and what the purpose of Jesus Christ is. There's an eternal purpose here. You see, God's redemption through Jesus Christ did not originate at around A.D. 01 when Jesus Christ was born. It wasn't that, okay, here's where salvation begins at this moment. No, there was a redemption in Christ that originated in the fathomless sea of eternity. If God is eternal, then God is past, present, and future all at once. You guys, that's the definition of eternity. You see, we can misunderstand eternity as this timeline that only begins after our death. And then we think about eternity as this continuous on into infinity existence through a timeline that we know today. Right? Y'all have, we understand our reality through a timeline of past, present, and future, don't we? And if we take that understanding of eternity, if we take the understanding of our current time into our understanding of eternity, we've missed that. Eternity is not a timeline. Eternity is an ever-present now. You ever heard that? Rather than eternity being a, a, a timeline of infinity that keeps going on and on forever, eternity is an ever-present now. 
Now, you and I are not in an eternal state, so we don't understand that. We have a timeline of born, living, and dying. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And so this understanding of God's eternal purpose means that God stands outside of time and has always had this plan of Christ right there in front of him. God has always known that his son Jesus Christ would redeem everybody. And from our perspective, as human beings in a fallen world, There was a time where the prophets were waiting for Christ, prophesying that the Messiah would come. And then he came, and then he died, and he rose from the grave, and now we benefit from that. But what Paul is telling them here in this mystery, verses 8 through 13, look at verse 8. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints... This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So there in verse 9 we see what Paul is saying, that through God's creation himself he established this mystery of the redemption through Christ. It's always been there. It's always been. Verse 10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Through the church, God's manifold wisdom is now understood. You see the importance of gathering as God's people? This is what Paul is reminding the church in Ephesus. You are now participants in a a divine, eternal purpose that God has always had in front of him and us. It's not something that at some point was not, and somehow it made itself present, and now is in the past. It always has been there, always is there, always will be there. Because that's the definition of eternity. And that's the mystery of how we are part of what God is doing. You and I can't figure out this understanding of eternity in our current state of being trapped in time. We are trapped in time. We are slaves to time. Has anybody ever, at the end of a work day or at the end of a work week, looked back and thought, I just need some more time to get it done? Anybody who's ever been in school, either in high school or college, you're asking yourself, how am I going to get all this done? There's not enough time. You see, we're slaves to time. But part of the mystery here is that God's plan of salvation is an eternal plan that is not bound by the slavery of time. And so always, it always was there, always is there, and always will be there. It's beyond our comprehension. And so this is part of what Paul is telling the church in Ephesus. You may be confused about your role as Gentiles now suddenly being part of God's people. 
You are not less than. You always were valuable to God. You are valuable now, and you will always be valuable to God. You are just as equal as God in, in God's family as anyone else. Because that's what God always wanted. That's the beauty of what Paul's telling us here. This manifold wisdom of God's plan is revealed in the church, is part of what we hold dear in the church. It's what we, it is what we have been given as a precious gift to proclaim to the world that there's place for you here in God's house, through God's family. Jesus loves you, and he wants to keep you. Now let's close with this. We don't have to turn there, but in John chapter 10, Jesus Christ himself speaks about this. When Jesus is speaking to the disciples and telling them what the the good shepherd looks like, in other words, the model shepherd by which we all strive to be like, Jesus says this in John chapter 10, verse 16. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. There is only one true church, just like there is only one true God and only one true Savior, Jesus Christ. We do not have multiple paths to God. We do not have multiple paths to salvation and eternity. There is only one. Amen? Jesus Christ himself is that shepherd, and he understood and was a part of the eternal desire and the eternal intent of making one flock with one shepherd. And there's room for everybody. And anyone who teaches other than that, according to Paul, is teaching error. If anyone doubts their place in God's kingdom, when they know and they know that they know that they have been forgiven and that God loves them, that is an error being taught to them. Oh, I have to do something else to make myself worthy. That's, that's a distorted gospel. Because God himself says, this is what I've always wanted. And I want to make it happen. And, he will, and if that's the case, he's going to sustain the church from now until the end. Because we're part of eternity now. Amen? Amen. Let me close this in prayer. Father God, we thank you for your word. And the workings of your gospel for salvation is a mystery to us because we are not you. Dear God, we we do not fathom what you know and we do not fathom, God, what you are. And so, God, I pray that if we have ever distorted your truth, I pray that you would forgive us and show us mercy and teach us our error so that we could teach what is true. But dear God, there's also in the midst of all of that knowledge and wisdom, there is a sense of mystery that keeps us dependent upon you. 
And so, God, I pray that you would use Sovereign Grace Baptist Church to preach the truth of the gospel, but that you would guard us from being arrogant and that somehow we have a lock on all truth when there's so much mystery in it. We can have assurance, dear God, that your truth is clear, but we can also be assured that it requires a lot of faith that your power is the only place that we can depend on teaching the truth. I pray, God, that if anyone here who's heard this message has doubts because someone has told them they're not a Christian, if there, if there is some room for doubt about their salvation, God, reveal that. But if they are truly part of your kingdom and you've loved them, and you love them now, give them assurance that they are part of your family. Remind them of exactly the, of the, the truth of the gospel, that Jesus Christ bought us all with the price of his blood. And there's nothing else that we can add to that or should add to that. We pray, God, that you would use this time to, to stir within each and every one of us as we pray, as we close this service, as we sing. Dear God, I pray that you would stir up in each and every one of us an understanding of where we are in your kingdom. If there are mysteries there or unknowns, Lord, I pray that you would give us a sense of peace even in that. But I pray, God, that you would give us all a sense of assurance that, yes, we do belong to you. We thank you, God, for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.